We're going to see uh, the sermon today by this Bob Tyler guy. I mean, who is this guy? That's not our regular preacher. I've got to do something first. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bob is standing in for me because uh, I was part of the group. Where are you going? Oh, you're okay. Um, I thought he was literally not preaching. Um, Bob is kindly standing in for me. I was with the Nicaraguan group, and I wasn't exactly sure that I was going to make it back on time. And um, many of you already know Bob, so I don't need to introduce him. But the thing I want to tell you about Bob is he makes everything better. He makes everything better. And so uh, I'm excited to hear him preach today. Um, his sermons, his prayers, his presence, uh, his ministry, his chaplaincy, his experience, his knowledge, his Facebook posts, um, maybe not the emails, um, make everything better. And uh, so we're really blessed to have him in our uh, congregation and sharing God's word today, and then I'm gonna. Uh, when you're done and you pray, then I'll lead in the invitation. Okay. All right. I can do that. Thank you, Andrew. Andrew is more generous with the pulpit than a lot of preachers I have known through the years because we, you know, um, we're kind of full of ourselves. Somebody said that a person all wrapped up, a man all wrapped up in himself makes a very small package. Well, I'm not a very small package. And I come to you this morning, <clears throat> well, from several issues in the background. I grew up in the beautiful suburb of East Point, Georgia. How many old East Pointers are here? You can always tell an old East Pointer, but you can't tell as much. <clears throat> but it was a good place to grow up and a good time to grow up in the 40s and 50s before I went to Cincinnati Bible Seminary. I was, my dad referred to me as an incubator preacher. And that's one who had to go to college to find out how to preach. I don't know how many of you all knew um, Preacher Peacock at Central Christian Church. He said, Preacher Peacock was a sure enough preacher. He decided God called him to preach, and he started preaching. Then he went to school to kind of fine-tune it a little bit, but he worked in a bank. But I'm an incubator preacher, and I had to go to learn some things about it. But all of that being said, this is not about me. This today is about the Word. And I was um, confident enough that even with the preacher being here this morning, uh, I thought I would speak on priority one for 2020. What is the church's priority? No matter who we are, where we've come from, where we're going, what is the church's first priority? And in this section of scripture, um, see what Paul has to say about it. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers and sisters... I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. For I received 
What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter and to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, that is, have died. And then he appeared to James, the Lord's brother, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Paul was handpicked by Jesus to fill the place, and I think he he was called to fill the place of the one who betrayed the Lord. I think maybe the apostles got ahead of themselves when they elected the other guy. We never hear anything else about him, but here's St. Paul. And he goes on to say, whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us with an everlasting love and you have given us not only the living word, Jesus, but you've given us this collection of little pamphlets that we call the Bible that was written by 40 or so people over 1,500 years, but it tells the same story. Jesus is coming. Jesus has come. Jesus is coming again. And that's why we're here. And we give you thanks and praise. Amen. Rush Limbaugh, in describing the current occupant of the Oval Office, said the reason President Trump gets in trouble is because he is a stream of consciousness speaker. What comes in his mind comes out his mouth. And I said, oh my gosh, that's me. That's why I've gotten in trouble time and again over the years. What comes in my mind tends to come out my mouth. And so I have to be sure that a lot of what I put in my mind is worth coming out my mouth. And if it comes from here, you know, if it's the gospel according to God, that's one thing. If it's the gospel according to Bob, you'd better filter it through something else. Because I might lead you astray. It's a new year. And when New Year comes, did any of you make any New Year's resolutions? Can I say a hand? Any resolution makers here? I have one resolution that I remake every year. It's three words. Do it now. Because I'm a great procrastinator. I believe never do today what you can put off till tomorrow. For tomorrow may not come. And you will have done it. I... I know a lot of preachers, and Andrew may be one of them, who walk out of their study on Thursday with a prepared text from which they're going to expound on Sunday. I was never able to do that. I said, if I got a sermon on Sunday and Jesus uh, on Thursday and Jesus came before Sunday, I would have wasted a perfectly good sermon. <laughs> Somebody gave me a mug. It says, if it weren't for the last minute, nothing would ever get done. I prize that mug. Sometimes I drink my coffee out of it. I've got several mugs that I rotate, but that's the one that describes me best. If it weren't for the last minute, nothing would ever get done. 
So here we have something from God that is of first importance. As of first importance, the gospel. What is the gospel? What's it? Children, from the primary department on, what is the meaning of the word gospel? Good news. Good news. And I believe good news is best reflected if you compare it with the bad news. Now, I used to say that when you go in a jewelry store and a jeweler brings out diamonds for you to consider, he usually puts them on black or maybe dark blue velvet or something like that. But when I went to the diamond shops in the Holy Land and other places like that, they put them down on white paper. I never quite understood that, but that just ruined my illustration. But I'm still going to use it. I think the, the good news is best seen when you reflect it against the bad news. Now, the bad news is in the third chapter of John. I know you know John 3.16. Say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Quote John 1.18. Did I see that hand in the balcony? No. John 1.18. Two verses below. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Folks, that is the bad news. Condemnation is the default position of humanity. You know what default positions are on your computers and so forth. So it goes back to the basic. And the basic is that those who do not believe in Jesus are not going to be condemned. They are condemned already. From the Garden of Eden on, every innocent looking little baby that is born is born condemned beautiful, pretty little children. We have this manger up here. Jesus came among us as one of us. He left the glory of heaven and came down and has filled our hearts and lives. But we tend to forget that along with John 3.16, God's wonderful love revealed in Christ points to a fact that those who do not know Christ are living somewhere. I want to share with you this morning I brought my napkin. I sometimes eat with other people. I have a Bible study that meets at the, uh, I was invited to teach the Bible study that meets at the Gordon's home on Thursday afternoons at 4 o'clock. And uh, I think we really meet so we can go out to eat. We meet at 4 o'clock, and if I get through in time, we, we all sit around deciding which, which local restaurant in Fayetteville we're going to invade. You know, the first church met at the sign of the fish. Fayetteville meets at the sign of the dish. You've got a, you've got a meal after this service today. So we're here. But I sometimes eat with a group of people, but I don't mind solitude. I do miss my beloved wife who passed away over a year ago. But I don't mind my solitude, and sometimes I get it in mind that I want something kind of country, and I'll travel over to 
the Cracker Barrel, <clears throat> and I'll sit there and I'll ask them to sit me in front of the fire so I can sit there and watch the fire. And sitting there watching the fire Friday night, I took it, the girl brought some napkins and I took a napkin and I wrote out what I was gonna share this morning. <clears throat> I couldn't read it on the napkin, so I had to type it out so I could read it from a distance. <clears throat> but I've got a five-point sermon this morning, and you're not gonna remember five points, and I didn't have it put on so it could be put on the screen or anything like that. I'm old technology. I don't do that. But somebody said, when you preach, tell them what you're gonna tell them, then tell them, then tell them what you told them. So I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. We are now, you know, humanity is living under the plight of condemnation. John 3, 18. But a person who has not yet come to Christ is illuminated in the transition of conversion, confronted with the crisis of salvation, growing through the process of sanctification and anticipating the ultimate goal of glorification. Five points. One at a time. Living under the plight of condemnation. That is the default position of humanity. Every person born in a fallen world, and if you don't believe we live in a fallen world, you're always going to be disappointed. I try to maintain low expectations from other people as well as myself, so I'm seldom disappointed in myself or others because none of us acts up to what we know. There's a difference between knowing what to do and doing what you know. And we have to come to a personal recognition of that position, and a lot of people have no clue because we've abandoned the Bible. The Bible was once printed by our government, studied in our schools, and now we are biblically illiterate, particularly the coming generations. I grew up in Sunday school and church. I went to Bible college expecting to be indoctrinated in the Christian faith. For the early Christians continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Everything that we've been through in this service this morning, word and table, fellowship, giving, all of those things come together as we worship the Lord. So a person needs to come to a recognition of their lost condition. And as we go through this, I want you to evaluate where you are in this process. So once a person discovers that they are in a fallen condition, they need to begin to look for something, but not just something, someone. It's not what you know, it's who you know. Paul didn't say, I know what I have believed, but I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he will keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. So it's not what you know, it's who you know. So we are illuminated in the transition of conversion. We have the light of creation, we have the light of conscience. We have the light of God's word. We have the light of Jesus. He is the light. He is not only the bearer of the light, he is the representative of that light that sits on the throne in heaven at which he is at its right, at his father's right hand. 
And so we grow as we are illuminated in the transition of conversion as we're brought to the word. And if we do not know this word, we will not know the living word, Jesus Christ. And as we are illuminated by the scripture, we come to a point of saying, well, where do I stand in this process? And then we're confronted with the crisis of salvation. Salvation is a crisis. When one perceives one's lost condition, the question comes, what must I do? Libyan jailer, what must I do to be saved? The people on Pentecost, when the Apostle Peter had convinced them that they had killed the Lord's Messiah, they said, what can we do about this? Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter didn't say, bow your head and pray this prayer or raise your hand. He said, repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins or into a state of remission, and you'll receive the gift which is the Holy Spirit. We come to Jesus through a believing repentance and a baptismal profession of faith, and it's all one process. Baptism is not a work. Baptism is a gracious condition to appropriate the free grace of God. I remember Roy McKinney who taught at Atlanta Christian College, now Point University. I remember him talking to someone who questioned baptism. I can see him on the porch of the dining hall at Crawfordville at the camp we used to attend. And he said, baptism symbolizes many things, but baptism is your submission to the Lordship of Christ. Jesus said it. I believe it. That settles it. No more questions. Can a person unbaptized go to heaven? I do not know. The Bible is the record of how he says he will save people, and I believe it is through a believing repentance and a baptismal profession of faith. It's all one action. Do it as soon as you can, if you haven't. And confronted with the crisis of salvation, you get confronted with the person of Jesus. It's all wrapped up in who he is and what he did. Who is Jesus? Well, a prophet, a rabbi, one who collected a coterie of followers, went around what we call the Holy Land, healing and preaching and helping people. But Jesus is the eternal God in human flesh. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. In him is light. And men hate the light because the darkness covers their evil deeds. We sang about coming into the light today. Who is Jesus? The eternal God in human flesh. What did he do? He bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might have a relationship with the Father who loves us because we're a part of his redeemed creation. And that if we go to heaven, it's going to be because of everything Jesus did on our behalf. Once we come to Jesus, what happens to us? Well, we keep coming to church every Sunday. And we take communion and we greet people. I think it's interesting. 
The first time I heard a sermon on this text, I believe it was at uh, Mount Gilead Campground, and the preacher that night was a famous Atlanta preacher from Grace Methodist Church, Dr. Charles Allen. Any of you ever heard of Dr. Allen? Dr. Allen wrote a book called God's Psychiatry. He said, you don't hesitate to take the same medicine several times a day. He said, if you'll take the 23rd Psalm five times a day, it'll change your life. Once at breakfast, I mean, once, at, once when you wake up, once at each meal, and once before you go to bed. He said, not just mumble through it, but absorb the 23rd Psalm, and that's God's psychiatry. It will change your life. Well, we are now growing through a process that is called sanctification. Now, some theologians look at sanctification as a second work of grace, that it's done all at once. I believe sanctification is a process. We are works in process. We're not there yet. We have not arrived yet. God says, be ye perfect as you, Jesus said, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And here we are trying to rise up to be what God has called us to be. And between us and there is where God has to reach down with his grace and lift us up. Not of ourselves, lest anyone should boast. So we are now growing through the process of sanctification. And we grow by Bible study and prayer and fellowship with God's people. That's one of the reasons we're here this morning. Is to be with God's people in God's house on the Lord's day at the Lord's table doing the thing the Lord has called us to do. And then as you go into chapter 16, I remember Dr. Allen saying, what uh, Paul said as he goes into the next chapter, he says, and now concerning the collection, you don't get out of church until the plate is passed. A part of what we do, the apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer, part of the fellowship is our sharing what God has given us so that we can bless the lives of others. And that's why some people take a week or so and go to a place like Nicaragua and help some people they don't even know. Aren't we glad we know some people like that? And I'm glad I didn't have to go. <laughs> I'm one of those that is now at ease in Zion. I have retired. And... I can do what Bob wants to do. But I still look for God, what God wants me to do in the time I have left. So we're growing through the process of sanctification. And while we're growing in that process, we're anticipating the ultimate goal, which is glorification. You realize one day we're all going to be glorified? That our sinful bodies raised are going to be transformed into the likeness of the glorious resurrected body of Jesus Christ. And some of the people in my Bible study have heard me say this before. How old was Jesus when he was raised from the dead? Hint. 33. Jesus' resurrected glorified body was 33 years old. If my resurrected glorified body is going to be likened to his resurrected glorified body, I'm going to be 33. 
It'll be my 33-year-old body that is raised and glorified. I had hair. I wasn't this heavy. I had not had my first kidney stone. I'll take my 33-year-old body resurrected and glorified. That may not be what it is, but I'll take it. And you will too <clears throat> if you're older than that. So we are anticipating the ultimate goal of glorification because we are now living the abundant life in the here and now. I came along 12 years later in my family. My siblings were 12, 14, and 16 when I was born. I had two daddies and three mothers. No wonder I'm spoiled because they were depression era children and wanted me to have the things that they didn't have. We have raised an entire generation now that thinks that life has always been like this. I was talking to a couple of guys this morning of the condition of the world. And the problem is we have generation that thinks this is the way life has always been and it ain't as good as they want it to be. So now they're thinking how good socialism sounds. And we can all be lowered to the common level of depression and depravity and need. Don't let them sell that thing. It has never worked anywhere it's ever been tried. So we're living the abundant life in the here and now, and we're anticipating eternal life in the world to come. So folks, think about where you are in this process. <clears throat> Have you moved from living under the plight of condemnation through the illumination and the transition of conversion, confronted with the crisis of salvation, have said yes to Jesus, growing through the process of sanctification and anticipating ultimate glorification? Considering where you are in the process, what do you need to do today to make it eternal? If you've never said yes to Jesus, you need to. If you've never submitted to the Lordship of Christ in Christian baptism, you need to. If you've never said, I want to be a part of God's forever family, even though it's an imperfect gathering in the here and now, one day it's going to be more than we could anticipate. Eye hath not seen, ear hath not heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Where are you in that loving transition?